Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series on church history. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, in uh, October 31st, 1517, just over 500 years ago, we celebrated the birth of the Protestant Reformation. And on that day, the famous uh, lawyer turned monk, turned professor, turned pastor, nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany. And it was an academic event. Luther was primarily a professor of theology. His 95 theses were very short, succinct statements, primarily addressing the abuse of indulgences at that time that were happening in the Roman Catholic Church. They were designed to reduce the amount of punishment that somebody had to spend in in purgatory. They could purchase their way to more hope and more comfort in the eternal life, which, of course, the 66 Protestant books of Scripture say nothing about. Luther reading the text of Scripture in their original languages, going back to the sources, ad fontes, looking at the Greek, looking at the Hebrew, confronted the tradition of what then was the Roman Catholic Church. Posting of these 95 statements not only launched the Protestant Reformation, as we know it, but forever changed the way that we at Tulsa Bible Church do church. Uh, Luther and his predecessors were responsible for reading the biblical text in a language that you can understand in our mother tongue. They're responsible for shifting the way that we sing songs as a church. It wasn't until the Reformation that churches really sang together, united uh, in their message and their praises to God. He changed the way we do scripture reading, that changed the way we do singing, he changed our ecclesiology almost from top to bottom, the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper, marriages, baptisms in the church. And if you're new to this whole thing called Christianity, uh, here's what you need to know if you're a member attending Tulsa Bible Church or a similar like-minded church that puts you into a broader category, uh, you and I are known as Protestant Christians. What that means is we united with the protesters of the abuses that were happening through the Roman Catholic Church at that time. Uh, people often ask, you know, why are, are Christians always fighting each other? Why are they always up in arms about stuff? Well, partially because we're sinners. And that's what we do. We think we know better and we want our way and we don't get our way, we don't like it. Uh, The other part of that is we are protesters by blood. We're, um, We're fighters. What came out of the Protestant Reformation was a fight for Scripture. It was a fight for truth. It was a good fight and it was one that has led to a lot of the freedoms that we enjoy uh, even here at TBC. Every year in the month of October, I like to just take a little bit of time and study some of our church history. And the reason I like to do this is because largely I would say that, uh, especially the American church, we suffer from what I would call historic amnesia. There's this huge length of time from 100 AD, the time of the end of the apostles, to right here 2022 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And for so many people, that huge length of time is just kind of this blank slate. We don't know what has gone on before us. We don't know how we came to be about the church that we are today. 
And we think that the way we do things is, is kind of up for grabs. And the reality is, is that history informs all of those things. As a, as a consequence of our historical amnesia, believers become extremely, three, one of three things happened. Believers become extremely vulnerable to the latest things in the church. Without being historically informed, we develop a Christianity that's probably a Christianity by name only. You've seen it through the emerging church, now through progressive Christianity. You've seen it through the cults in America. Every major cult has basically started with some underpinnings of, of Christianity and Scripture, some guy alone with his Bible, figuring things out for himself, having a vision from God, and then proclaiming it to other people and getting a following. Other people are poisoned with pride and suffer from what C.S. Lewis would have called chronologically, chronological snobbery. If it's new, it's automatically better than everything else that has gone on before it. My way is the best way. Let's do church the way that I want to do church. All of a sudden, you got churches hop, popping up in uh, coffee shops across the streets, wherever they want to, and they call it church, and, and lo and behold, there's no essence of any kind of historical tie to what has gone on before them. Others yet fail to see the the doctrines and the theology they believe in the broader context of church history. Nobody does theology in a vacuum. Today, you're going to hear a lot of theology on, on the radio and in, in writings and in books, and stuff is hot on the shelves, and most of it has to do with the issues that we're dealing with on a contemporary basis right now today. Sexuality is a, a huge issue right now. Uh, you're going to Biblical marriage is on hard times. All of that is, is very historically geared and contemporary to our time and to our culture, and so you're going to see a lot of theology happening because of that. We are living in unprecedented times, and I'm personally convinced that the most relevant way to understanding what is happening at the present is to understand what happened in the past. The best way to approach contemporary problems in a church and culture is both biblically and historically. But to ignore either is to do an injustice to both of those things. This year, I want to go back and, and talk a lot about the patristic era, this period of time, the very beginning of church history from A.D. 100 to 451, and just highlight some of the things that were happening and, uh, and I want to encourage you to just, just jot down some notes. Um, we can talk more about some of these things after. I'm going to try to gear this to Scripture at the very end. There's not going to be too many passages we look at, but this is going to be, hopefully be super informative for you and um, for your understanding of, of historical Christianity. Overall, the patristic era was known for three things. Number one, you had the persecution of Christians. Thousands of people were martyred for the faith in the early years of the church. And it was largely because the politicians were fearful. They didn't want these Christianity. They kept hearing about Christianity was spreading, and they kept hearing about these groups of Christians that were bonding together in unity for a common cause and a common purpose in the culture. And they were afraid of it. They wanted to put it they didn't want any coup d'etat, strikes against the state of Rome, and so they put, it to, put a lot of people to death. In the early years, you had the rise of the apologists. Today, we, we see many apologist ministries that are very successful 
in the United States. The uh, original apologist attempted a rational defense of the faith. You had guys like Origen, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, making great claims of the rational defense of Christianity at their time and in their culture. Surprisingly, you also saw the rise of the bishops, the episcopas, the, the overseers. And it's really interesting if you're tracing those three things, you're saying, Jared, how in the world did the church go from persecution, martyrdom, to now you've got the rise of bishops in this authority in the church that was gaining ground, gaining momentum, and coming into being. Um, how did the church go from persecution to that? And here's the deal. This is one of the great arguments for the truth of, of Christianity. The more the Romans killed Christians, the more Christianity grew. The more the church was persecuted, the more people became believers, and the faith was growing. If Jesus really didn't rise from the grave, somebody explain all of these thousands of martyrs that are dying for the faith. It just doesn't really make sense otherwise. Those that lived knew they needed pastors and they needed teachers to lead them in what would become biblical truth, solid theology, and communities centered on Christ, living together for one another and for the glory of Christ. The second reason is one of the greatest shifts in history that we have ever seen in the, in the modern West especially, but, but Western civilization, one of the anomalies that has really disturbed people, and still scholars don't understand everything that happened. It still puzzles historians today. By the year 311 AD, Emperor Galerius once persecuted Christians, realized that his efforts were fruitless. It was doing no good for the Roman Empire. And so he issued what was called the Edict of Toleration. It was an official Roman law that ended the persecution of Christians and established Christianity as a option among many, a religion in Rome. But more than anything, it was this guy right here, Constantine the Great, who did more for the church and for Christianity than any emperor who came before him, probably almost any emperor after him as well. You need to know that by this time in Rome, the time of Constantine, 312 AD, emperors did not gain power by being born into the role. Rome had seen too many emperors by blood that were crazy wackos. And so no longer was the emperor a bloodline in Rome. Now it was more mafia tactics and power. If you had an army and you wanted power and you wanted influence, you were going to fight for it in Rome. And that's exactly what Constantine did at this time. Um, Galerius, now dead, two men fought for power for the emperor of Rome, Constantine and Maxint Maxintius, I think is how you pronounce his name gathered their armies on the Tiber River just north of Rome. Constantine was easily outnumbered. And it's a great mystery of history. What happened that Constantine won that battle? Some say, as the day's armies gathered, there was a sign in the sky as bright as the midday sun. Others say that Jesus Christ appeared to Constantine himself in a vision and in a dream, and he revealed to himself, revealed to Constantine a sign. If you see the, uh, the coin, this, this symbol right here, this is the Greek letter chi, and this is a row. Chi, rho are the first two letters of the word Christ in Greek. 
the story goes that Constantine got a symbol of this sign. He put that sign resembling uh, a representative of Christ for the people of Rome. He went into battle with that emblem on the shield of all of his uh, soldiers. They go into battle on the Milvian Bridge, and Constantine, though greatly outnumbered, wins the battle. Motivated by a religious sense of calling, his smaller army defeated Maxentius. And the Christogram, as is now known as, became ubiquitous Christian symbol of victory in Christ. And he will lead the way. Constantine established what was known as the Edict of Milan that legalized Christianity for the Roman Empire, provided freedom of religion to all people across the Roman Empire. Later, when Constantine had sole power of the emperor, empire, he dropped the image of himself as a representative of the sun god, and he took on the image of Jesus Christ. He represented Jesus Christ now in the image of the son of righteousness. Constantine did so many amazing things for the empire of Rome, and really for us today, I just want to mention a few of them. It was revealed over time that he never really liked the city of Rome. Instead, he wanted to, he, he was, uh, aggravated by the paganism. He didn't like what Rome had become at the time, so he took the capital city of Rome and he moved it to what then was known as Byzantium. He moved the capital east to a city that was strategically located <clears throat> on the Black Sea in the northeast and the Mediterranean Sea to the southwest. Um, Constantinople, Byzantine, right here, there's a small little isthmus that will combine what was known as the Roman Empire with everything that was east in Asia, and it was a perfect place. It was said that the isthmus between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea was so narrow that you could string a chain across it so that ships couldn't get through it. It was the perfect place for a capital city, and it was a capital city that lived long through the pages of history. He renamed the magnificent city of Byzantium after himself. He called it Constantinople, or Constantinople. What happened was a geographical division emerged in the church. Now you didn't have Rome centralized in one place. Now you had a Western Rome and you had an Eastern Rome with two very significant cities. It will take about 500 years after Constantine does this for the church to, to split a major split between the Eastern and Western church. The, the West being Roman Catholicism, the East being more of an Orthodox church. If you ever hear of Eastern Orthodox churches, you're primarily going to hear of, of Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox because of this split that happened way back then. The new and established empire, the Byzantine Empire, lasted 1,100 years. In the West, the church drastically changed when it was when it fell to the Gauls, to the north. The Roman Empire fell uh, about 500s AD. But in the east, Christianity and the, and the Roman Empire lasted much, much longer than that. And it was largely because of the monks and the monasteries and the spiritual disciplines of these quiet guys living kind of in these unreached areas, carrying on the traditions of Christianity. The Byzantine Empire was an orthodox 
Christian empire from day one, and it is one of the longest, strongest lasting empires that we have ever seen in any civilization in the history of the entire world. Another thing that Constantine did, he made, and you guys happy you don't have to go to work today? You You know why you don't have to go to work on Sundays? Constantine the Great, he made Sunday an official holiday in the Roman Empire. So you can thank Constantine for this. Uh, Sunday was a distinctly, Sunday wasn't a distinctly Roman day, by the way. I'm, I'm learning that uh, my kids know way more about history than I do, um, and probably ever will, because they're schooling what they're getting. But um, do you know why, why Sunday's called Sunday? You know why Monday is called Monday? Sunday is the day that the Egyptians worshiped the sun, the sun god. Monday is the day that the Egyptians worshiped the moon, moon god. Almost it, four days out of the week, five days. Thor got a day. You guys ever hear of Thor's day before? All these days are, are named after a lot of pagan religions. Uh, Constantine made Sunday an official holiday. He didn't worship the sun. He worshiped the sun, S-O-N, with a capital S. Um, Rome brought all of these things over from Egypt, of course. There are many, there are many things that we plundered from the Egyptians. Um, the days of the week are one of those things. It was Constantine I who made Sunday the official first day of the week and legalized it as a holiday for Christians. Constantine was the first emperor to give tax breaks to churches. You realize that we don't pay property taxes here as a church? You can thank Constantine for that. He was the first guy to do it in the Roman Empire. Brad, you're pretty grateful. Your taxes are a little bit different as a pastor. Dustin, I know you're up there somewhere. I'm Thank the Lord for Constantine. He's helped me out a ton. I still got to pay self-employment taxes, but he helps out churches in an amazing way. And he did something that had never really been done in the church up to this point. He funded churches, allowing them to build buildings. The first buildings, the basilicas that you have, these dome-shaped buildings in Eastern Orthodox buildings, all of those came because of Constantine. And Tommy Nelson shares a really interesting quote about this. He says, if you would have looked around at the time of Constantine, you would have thought that the kingdom of God had finally come to its fullest. Churches were, were free to celebrate Christianity, to worship without the fear of persecution. You had uh, land without taxes. You had pastors. You had all these great benefits that the church had never, ever experienced before. And it was at this time that a new eschatology had emerged. For the most part, the church believed in a future millennial kingdom. One day Christ would return to the earth and set up a literal thousand-day kingdom on the earth from Jerusalem. It would, be, it would be the millennial future kingdom of God. When this, all of this started happening because of Constantine, a new eschatology emerged called amillennialism. Now, all of a sudden, they thought that they were in the millennium. They thought that this was the future millennium of God right there. And so people did away with a literal historical fulfillment of those prophecies of the thousand-year kingdom. This came because of the time of Constantine. The Pope was the vicar of Christ, and the bishops began to rule, state and church alike. Constantine did something else as well. Um, if, you, if you really want to know 
what interests a church and what's happening with churches at any particular time in a region or a bigger territory, what you do is you start studying and you look into church conferences. You look into church conferences, what are churches studying? What are they interested in knowing more about? What are the the theologians, what are the professors, what are the pastors coming together uh, to flesh out from Scripture? Today's conferences are, hey, Methodist Church, anybody know what's, what's going on in the Methodist Church? We're dealing with a split. Now we got three denominations out of one. Not too long ago was the Presbyterian Church, PCA, PCUSA. You know, a lot of division. How is all this going to happen? What's going what's to come of these denominations and these churches? The majority of church conferences in America over the last 40 years have been things like this. How do I build a bigger church? How do I gain a following? How do I put together ministry programs that function well? How can I attract more people? How can I market Tulsa Bible Church to be more marketable to to the average person and get them to come into church? The majority of church conferences in the last 40 years have been more concerned about CEO and business-like mentalities in the church than anything else. But it wasn't always this way. Once upon a time, when Christianity was first legalized, Constantine gathered the church thinkers, theologians, and pastors together to flesh out the deep theology that we now hold and know as the creeds of the faith, the ecumenical creeds. They're ecumenical because they are universal, they are common to all orthodox, evangelical-believing churches. At one time, the church gathered together to discuss issues of deep theology. They debated heavily about the doctrine of the Trinity, about the doctrine of Christ, the person and nature. Who was he? How did he function? How did he exist? How do we make sense of the Father and the Son? Bruce Shelley puts it this way in his book on on church history. He says, church history shows us that Christian theology is not primarily a philosophical system invented by men in the quiet of an academic study. Doctrines were hammered out by men who were the work crew of the church. One of the, the phrases I go back to over and over again is that theology is best done in community. One guy alone making theology and theological statements without being sharpened from different perspectives, different ideas, different disciplines in the faith, is never healthy. And so we do theology together. We do theology in community. Theology is often progressively formed and articulated in an orthodox manner, and it faced the grave errors and the heresies of the day. Constantine did this. He gathered up all the pastors, all the theologians in the area, and he said, I want you to come together, and I want you to figure out this whole thing about the Son and the Father. How do these two entities, these two persons exist? What is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? And he began to split some very important hairs in the history of the church. The first hair splitting was over a doctrine that separates and distinguishes Christianity from every other religion on the planet. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. Of of anything that a Christian could say about God, by far the most distinguishing element will be, what do you believe about the Trinity? 
How does it work? Explain it. God is three persons in one essence. Constantine wanted, you got to understand, he wanted a Christianity like no other time in the Roman Empire. He wanted Christianity to flourish. And he kept hearing these outcries, he kept hearing these reports that there was disunity among Christians across the Roman Empire. He didn't want that disunity. And so he said, all you guys come together, let's figure this out together so we can be strong and united in what we believe and why we believe it. In fact, over the next few centuries, the church would call for seven councils, seven ecumenical councils, hammering out the doctrine of the Trinity, the personal work of Christ, the church and some of its ecclesiology. Constantine convened the first council in 325 AD in the city of Nicaea, 318 men gathered together for one month. And the main question was, what is the relationship between the Father and the Son as it is revealed in Scripture? While the council clearly fleshed out theology and what it believed, it also fleshed out what it did not believe. In the early church, theology is probably more known for the things that are heretical, even more so than the things that they, that they believe. There's a there's a really good story from Christian history. You, perhaps you've heard this before. Somebody needs to Google this. Uh, I've heard it from several people. Now I'm going to share it with you. You might have heard it yourself. Once upon a time, there was a wealthy industrialist whose wife left the country for a, a continental holiday. That's what it was called. And she had a lot of money. She was very wealthy. Sent away by the husband, goes and, and finds at this place a rare and precious diamond. And the second that she saw this precious diamond, she wanted it. It was $75,000 for this one diamond. And at that time, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have landlines. And so they had to communicate by telegram. She sent a telegram back to her husband, says, I found this precious diamond, $75,000. Can I buy it? The husband replied, no, comma, price too high. The telegram officials, when they sent it over, they forgot one little piece on the telegram. They forgot the comma. And she said, no price, he said, no price too high. Woohoo! Glory to Jesus. I'm going to get me a diamond, <laughs> and it's going to be a great one. Praise you, Jesus, for this diamond. Goes back. Actually, the, uh, the guy ended up suing the telegram company because they inaccurately communicated the message, and he won. He won the case. One tiny little comma makes a huge difference in communication. When it came to fleshing out the doctrine of the Trinity, one tiny little letter of the Greek alphabet. It is an iota, it's called. It is the smallest of all Greek letters. Makes a huge difference in your theology. One of the biggest issues in the Trinitarian debate, how does Jesus relate to the Father? How does Christ the Son relate to the Father? A bishop from Alexandria in Egypt named Arius, he had an idea, and he thought that Christ was like God the Father, but he did not exist from eternity. And there was a time when the Son of God was not. He actually was begotten in time. The term used to say that the Son was like the Father, homoousios. He is like. 
He is not similar to. Others believe the Son was not like the Father, but he was the same. And the word that you'd use to describe that is homoousios, one little Greek letter. Huge difference in the doctrine of the Trinity. At the Council of Nicaea, 318 church leaders produced what is called the Nicene Creed. I won't give you all of it on the slides behind you, but I will read some of it because it is, this is what we believe about God at Tulsa Bible Church. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He became man for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death. He was buried. He rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That phrase there will be debated in church history. Who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The Catholic there with a small c just means that we believe in a universal, united church of all true believers everywhere who have placed their faith totally and completely and only in Jesus Christ. We confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And by the way, <clears throat> this stuff is more applicable than you might originally think. Have you ever had a couple of guys in white shirts and black ties knock on your door with pamphlets before? They had a different view of the homo usias. They believed in the homoi usias. And so the next time they come knocking on your door, here's what you tell them. You, said, you say, I'm not an Aryan, sir. Please take your literature back. I believe that Christ is of the same essence as the Father. Three distinct persons, but the exact same, the very same essence for all of them. I and the Father are one. Uh, John 14, look, look down at John chapter 1, uh, verse 1, if you got that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you have that? John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and this Word is actually Jesus who became flesh for us. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We have seen his glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Turn over to John chapter 10. Look down at verse 30. Uh, look back up to verse 28. These are really good verses. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. John 10, verse 28. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Turn to chapter 14. 
John's Gospel. Philip asked Jesus a question. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Baptist statement of faith in message, 1963. They had a little phrase that needed to be amended just a little bit in their 2000 faith and message. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. They went back and wrote that for clarity to make sure that they knew that there was never a time when the Son was not. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are eternal. Each one, three distinct persons, yet one essence. Little waves of Arianism kept creeping up throughout the empire, though. Nicene Creed in 325 AD was not the end of this. In 381, the second ecumenical council was not convened in Nicaea this time. Instead, it was convened in Constantinople, Constantine's city, and they definitively labeled Arian a heretic from 381. They dealt with another heresy at the time that was called Apollinarianism. It was this idea that the humanity of Christ can be distinguished and separated from the deity of Christ. Do you know a whole lot of people in a modern time frame that say that, you know what, I like your Jesus, he was just a man though. You're going to tell me that Jesus was fully God? I don't believe you. He was just a man. This was one of the errors that began centuries ago, millennia ago, called the Polinarianism. They wanted to separate the deity of Christ from the humanity of Christ. And when you start messing around with that stuff and separating pieces out from Jesus, you get into a slew and a litany of theological issues. So don't do it, all right? Modalism. You ever hear an illustration about God that God is like an egg? These, these three parts of an egg. You got the shell, you got the yolk, you got the white stuff. Without all three parts of those, you don't, you don't have an egg just like you don't have God, you don't have the Trinity. God is like a water, you know, he's like ice, liquid, and vapor all at the same time. Uh, maybe even at different times. It, all these illustrations, all these different ways that people are, were coming up to explain the deity. God is like a tree. You've got the roots that you can't see. You've got the trunk. You've got the fruit of the tree. No illustration. Here's what I want to call for as a pastor at Tulsa Bible Church. Brad, back, back me up on this. No illustration is going to accurately depict the Trinity in all of its clarity. So stop using them. They're going to be wrong somewhere along, along the line. And great, great people. Anybody, Bishop T.D. Jakes, hear this guy? There was a guy that went on, on TV not too long ago, was even more popular than Jakes, that came up and said, God is like an egg. No, he's not like an egg. He doesn't exist in different modes at different periods of time. That's not how it works in the Trinity. And so you can't compare them to that stuff. Um, the Trinity is, is one of these, again, these basic deep mysteries. We will never fully understand it. We will never grasp all the details. We, we certainly don't know how it works. We see it fleshed out in the life and ministry of Christ. But there are elements here that are way beyond us. We don't have the wisdom to comprehend and to grasp it. 
It was these early creeds. It was Nicaea, it was Constantinople, it was Chalcedon, where these godly men came together to study theology in community and preserve for the church, for us even today, what we would consider as orthodox teaching of the faith that was passed down from Jesus to the apostles and to those who were after him to carry on a legacy of what real Christianity actually is. And when you take a step off of that ledge of historic Orthodox faith, you will fall and make a thousand blunders. But if you know Scripture, and if you know just a little bit of history and some of the things that have come before us, you can be preserved from a thousand lesser evils And you can be built up and enriched in a faith that is not only yours personally, but is the church's universally. That was the intention of the creeds. The creeds' purpose was to preserve for us a universal faith, the things that we know about God for certain, and there can be no error in it. This is what unites us with every other believer across the planet who has truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So, next week, we're going to talk about the Council of Chalcedon, the deity and the humanity of Christ. Have you ever heard of something called the hypostatic union before? We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to grow in our understanding of, of the deity and the humanity of Christ. We're going to see exactly what happened as the Roman Empire fell and what led to the Middle Ages and how things shifted from there. You're going to see some divisions in the church. You're going to see how uh, things happened from Rome and from Europe that influence us even here and where we came from. So I want to, I want to encourage you to come back and we'll look at some more of those verses together and ideas together. All right. Let me pray and we'll close it off. Father in heaven, again, um, just thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to stop and to Uh, Just turn our attention, help us understand a little bit more about the things that have taken place before us. Lord, give us a humility to understand that people have gone before us that have contributed greatly to our faith, the things that we believe. Help us to understand that, that theology, when we do theology, we are studying what people have concluded about the faith in addition to the things that we have in Scripture. And so help us to keep an eye, a firm eye, on the truth of Scripture and to apply that to a historical context, understand a little bit more about how things have developed. Lord, I also pray for TBC that we would develop a strong and contagious humility to know that um, many, many scholars, pastors, and believers have gone on before us Many people have died for the faith that we have believed. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. Many of them we don't even know who have gone off to the foreign mission field to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and this theology that we, have hold, that we hold. Lord, keep us, keep us humble with the things we know. Help us to pick our battles well when it comes to theology, when it comes to practice in our ecclesiology. 
Help us to be informed about those things. Most of all, I pray that this just wouldn't be an intellectual academic exercise. I pray it would be something that, that brings us together as a community, to study theology together as the early church did uh, to flesh out some of the basic and most foundational things, the most distinguishing elements of what we believe and why we believe it. Give us a heart to look beyond ourselves and before ourselves. And we thank you for the opportunity to do so. We pray all this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.